Anton Eastick is here with us tonight, but we welcome Anton back. We're really, really grateful that he comes regularly to teach here um, and to offer um, his wisdom and engagement with the practice to us. So we welcome Anton. Thanks, Amanda. That little clip was from a guided meditation which Anton took a class through in Melbourne. And the whole guided meditation uh, is at the end of this episode. So if you feel like going on that little journey with, with Anton, stick around for that. Yeah, I wanted to sit down and talk with Anton as I knew he'd had a range of different experiences with meditation and mindfulness practices. And we dive into trauma in this episode and take a look at how our minds work in order to make us feel certain ways, like our reactions, basically, and how we can become aware of our past conditioning and step out of that so we can enjoy authentic interactions between each other. So if you feel that's for you, then you're in the right place. Okay, here it is. Yeah, so I don't know anything about your your sort of early days, your your childhood where you grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and I yeah, I think it'd be nice to sort of hear some of that uh, as a as a background to your where you're at now. Well, I uh, I was born in Wagga Wagga, and. Uh, grew up in a small farming community just north of Wagga. And uh, we lived on a farm. There was uh, mum and dad and eight children, six sisters and a brother. And, um, and really I was there until I was around about 22, actually. I left school when I was 16, Stayed there on the farm for six years, but uh, always had this little urge to travel. And uh, that was there for a long time. And I always had a sense there was uh, something more to life. Actually, it was the feeling that it was a very strong feeling. And there was sort of like one memory that always comes back to me when I was in primary school and I was, we were on a like lunch break or something and all the kids were playing and I was sitting with a, 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 one of my, my, all my best mate at the time and and um, we're looking at the other kids running around and the trees and the grass and this. What, what is it that makes us alive? And there was something about that question that was just really intriguing. And, you know, it probably only lasted for about 20 minutes and then we're sort of back running around and everything, but somehow it stayed with me. And... And it was this very strong feeling, yeah, there's something more to life. And so I, uh, somehow that just sort of drove me. And then I went, when I went to um, England, the Australian's form of going to Mecca on the pilgrimage, 
I met a few guys who um, just sort of introduced me to a slightly different way of life. And they were quite challenging and yet also quite fun. Uh, and there was something very freeing about the way that we all shared a, a couple of months of traveling together. It just opened me up again. I was like, there's this, you know, it's like an awakening of sorts. Oh, yeah, this is, you can be quite free, you know, and have this wonderful sense of freedom. And so uh, that sort of really stayed with me in such a strong way that when I came back to Australia, then I decided to go to university so I can study and, and so I could travel, really, just with that money, but it didn't quite work out that way. Oh, the, the money from... F- where did the money come from? Well, the money was just coming from from the job that I would get from that. Oh, you know? from yeah. the university degree? Yeah. Right. Mm. And so I did do the work for a few years afterwards, the um, computer work, which is what I studied. And by that stage, I'd sort of had enough. I'd forgotten all about the travel thing by that point. But um, but I was gripped by this question of, you know, I just want to find the truth. Uh, someone had already given me um, some uh, Buddhist books and Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. I don't know if this one's still going around, but I was sort of big at that in those days. And I started reading those in the early 90s. Right. And and so and there was a, a driving towards truth, you know. That's all. I, I didn't know what I wanted, but I knew. It it was about truth, you know. Talking to my housemate at the time one night on the on the, um, on the lounge, and somehow, I remembered. That when I had got back from Europe all those years ago, then I had this idea of travelling. And I'd forgotten all about it. And I was, I was going to go back overseas. Somehow I'd just lost, you know, seven or eight years or something. And then I remember talking to her about it. And I said, you know what, I'm going to go. And so the next day I went and booked my ticket. I came back. From booking the ticket, the woman next door um, heard I was leaving and came over to just, you know, say hello. And um, she said, what are you doing with the van? I said, well, I'm selling it. She said, great, I'll buy it. So everything just fell into place. Within a week, I was off. And I went over to Europe and I was travelling Europe a bit and went to the big rainbow gathering there, which is around about uh, three weeks long. It's a European one. You get about 3,000 people there. And it's quite something. And it was really dynamic and frustrating and mm, amazing and and something else. And, you know, I I was one day uh, sitting at a fire and we're joking, those three of us, they're joking that we hadn't eaten for three days because the kitchen hadn't cooked enough food. And we're all making a little pack, right, tomorrow we're going to take over the kitchen. <laughs> and it was a pretty jovial moment. And, and so we introduced ourselves and... And this guy who was next to me happened to be this guy, Martin Elwood, who this friend had told me about in Ireland. Would you believe it? And he's a very impressive man. And, uh, and he then told me about these retreats in India. And to cut a long story short, I was so impressed with him and his other friends who also had been part of these, these uh, retreats in India that I, um, I sort of decided, okay, well, that's where I'm going to go. You know, if this practice leads to this sort of guys, 
you know, I'm, I'm impressed and I want in. Okay. okay, I'm going there. So I went to Thailand, did a bit of time there, just to waste some time before the retreat started in India. Then I got to Bodh Gaya, which is where these retreats were every year, run by Christopher Titmus. And um, as it was, another man was running some retreats there, this wonderful guy called Mike Culey. And Mike had decided he was going to run six 10-day retreats in a row. Finish one day, start another the next day. And I, I thought, well, that's a bit too much. But I'll do, I'll do the first one to, you know, while I'm waiting for these other retreats to happen, which were three 10-day retreats in a row. Was this Vipassana? It's inside meditation, yeah. Inside meditation, okay. Yeah. okay. Yeah. So you ended up it, doing three, no, more than three 10-day courses back-to-back. We ended up do- I ended up doing five. And at the end of five, Mike had had enough. We'd all had enough, actually. So he didn't do the last one. But anyway, it was all enough. You know, we'd been doing so much love and kindness. We're totally in love with the world. So, <laughs> so, so he went off and then I spent, you know, another nine months in India, essentially, from there. And while you're in India, some more meditation and sort of searching for, for the truth? Well, um, okay, we go back a step. Uh, there's something important happened when I first arrived in Bhagaya. And that was that in Bhagaya, there's the main temple for people who haven't been there. And it's called the Mahabodhi Temple. And, and that's where the famous Bodhi tree is, where supposedly the Buddha awakened under. And it's not the one, it's a descendant of the one that was there. A seed was taken to Sri Lanka. So it's related to the Bodhi tree of, of the Buddha's awakening. But back in those days, Buddhism wasn't very well known. Not many people went there. The Dalai Lama would rock up with only about 10 people around him. It's a bit different to, say, about two years ago, there were 600,000 people who came to see his teaching. And so before his retreats, Mike um, was doing this lovely thing, the man that I did these retreats with. He was... He was giving a Dharma talk every day in the grounds of the of this uh, of the Bodhi Temple. In fact, there's this lovely little corner at the back, and we we just go and sit and listen to him. It was a very felt like a very timeless scene. There was the teacher sitting up a little bit higher, and we'd be all sitting on the ground around him, and he, and he he'd give really lovely talks, Mike, in a very beautiful way. And I remember the day when he sort of gave his gave some of the Buddha's teachings, you know, this this Dharma talk, and. It was so sweet to hear these words of the Dharma. You know, I was just so touched by it. I, I, you know, it still touches me now as I, I remember it. And, and I just remember sort of just crying and crying and crying. Just it's still, you know, it still gets me. It's so beautiful that moment. You know, of of, of hearing these words and, and remembering. There's something in that, in those words that just touched me to the core. And I felt like I'd waited my whole life to hear these words. So that, I think, is important. That's, that's, it was a real turning point. So that, in that relation to the searching for truth, it's like, now I'd found it. That was the difference. You know, that now, huh. This is what I'd been looking for. And yet also that then, like I knew, like I guess the path, 
But then as far as understanding the truth of the Buddha's teachings, that was another thing. (laughs) That was another, that quest um, still uh, was driving me. And so essentially from then I left or I stayed in India for, I don't know, eight or nine months. I I spent a few more months in Nepal, uh, did a whole bunch of Vipassanas then again. In, uh, in Nepal? Yeah, just outside of Kathmandu, the Goenka Vipassanas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, lived in uh, ashrams and things basically most of that time, pretty well most of that time. Rishikesh, a long time there and, yeah, wherever I could find somewhere that would put me up, really, some some sort of ashram. And came back to Australia and, um, like, I'd heard about this place, Guy House in South Devon, and that you could go and live there. And I really wanted to do that. So I, um, I sent them a letter and um, very quickly they, uh, they got back to me. Um, I went there and spent uh, a whole year there. Wow. Um, it was an incredibly challenging year. Like the dynamics between the managers were very challenging. And uh, it was a little bit chaotic. There wasn't a great support network at that point. But there was wonderful teachings and that sort of just nourished us. There was a, we had a weekly meeting between all the managers where we would um, really, we'd have a little personal sharing of this is what's happening for me. And then we'd have a little group process and it's like, well, has anyone got something they'd like to bring out, you know, and... and I would say, well, say if you were there, I'd be saying, yeah, I, I, I want to have a chat to Ben about something, you know. It's not like you, you know, don't feel like you're doing the washing up like you should be doing and it's really pissing me off. <laughs> yeah. So it would go around the circle and everyone would be sort of bringing up things they needed to sort of get off their chest and say, like, hey, let's, yeah. let's take a look at this. yeah. Um, mostly we sort of got to a point where there was some sort of resolution and because uh, it was pretty tense at times. In that way, you know, it was, it was, it was very deep because we started to learn that, well, this awakening thing is not just about sitting on your cushion. It's about how you relate to each other. Yeah. It, it makes sense to me, though, like your, your relations with other people, with other humans, you know, I guess that brings us to why... We meditate, you know, it's, is, it, is it just to still the mind? And then once we've done that, go out and sort of behave however we want to, or is it more about bringing the same stillness into our interactions with others and bringing what we learn, maybe the insights or the, yeah, just the learnings into our interactions with, in this case, the other managers? Mm. Um, yeah, and uh, actually... In the practice, it's not about becoming still anyway, full stop. Okay. Yeah. Stillness is, is uh, would, would generally be more, you would say, like the first part of meditation, we're sort of segueing slightly, would be around about the, the calming of the mind. But then, uh, and that just helps really for insight. And insight's more the inquiry into the nature of mind. So if you try and hold on to stillness, you will be in trouble. Because <laughs> the um, as soon as you go out into the world, the mind will get busy again. 
So freedom comes not from, uh, say, stilling the mind, but from, from wisdom. That the wisdom of understanding what's happening. Understanding your conditioning, understanding dependent arising. Yeah. Mm. I'd like to sort of understand for myself the nature of, of trauma a little bit better and how it, how it affects our authentic expression of our energy. Is there just a traumatizing incident and then that's it? It's gone? It doesn't affect us anymore? Or is it something that persists and stays with us? Yeah. Yeah. One of the, I think one of the definitions that I quite liked, and it possibly came from Peter Levine or Peter Levine, he, uh, he said, trauma is essentially an experience that was too much for us to handle at some point. It's something that we... We didn't really have the capacity to handle it. And so we then dealt with it in a way that enabled us to move on, to somehow be functional in, in the life that we're living. So it could have been uh, one incident, or it could be a, a, an ongoing uh, series of incidents or events, you know, uh, whether that is one of say, more extreme things of, say, like um, attack, abuse of some sort, or more subtle ones of, of not being um, met in a certain way that answered uh, deeper needs within us. So, uh, for instance, not being the simple thing of not being listened to. If as a child we had parents or a parent who continually dismissed our uh, cries for um, attention, yeah? We might internalise a message that my needs are not important, yeah? The needs, though, don't go away. But what we do with them is, is part of the challenge. So we might then suppress them within ourselves and pretend to ourselves that we don't have them. Yeah. We do that pretending to, uh, one, kid ourselves that we don't have these needs, but also to make it clear to others, oh, I'm not a needy person because that's not okay. Because mm, that's what we were told. It's not okay to acknowledge our needs. That's right. Yeah. And if it's a family where love is not displayed openly and easily, for instance, as it is in many families, it could be as simple as having... uh, of, of openly sharing kindness and love. It's surprising how many families can't do that. So you mean that as a, as, as a trauma or as, as a need that was not met? As a trauma. As a trauma. Yeah. That sharing openly of that love and... Yeah. Okay. okay. That love is somehow freely given and freely received. Hmm. So then 
we develop a personality that keeps that out. So receiving love is not something that um, in a, a very simple, open, somatic way is not something that happens easily. If it does, then it's actually a bit scary, possibly. This is one form of trauma. Right. That's interesting because I've often thought of trauma as like this big event, this big traumatizing like bang you know like a, someone hits you or yells right in your face or something like mm. but you, what you're saying is there's many different levels and subtleties of trauma that's right yeah you know of course it can be much stronger than that so one of sexual abuse and yet something like that also is not uh, held within just the context of the abuse itself because for instance abuse might happen but say you might say in a, a more um, uh, a family possibly where expression is free and open that child might be then might then be able to tell uh, say their caregivers or parents that what had happened so they don't hold on to it necessarily and they, that gives a space for then a response from the parents to then stand up for the child, huh. protect the child, and for that child to feel safe again, hmm. um, to deal with the perpetrator, to keep them distance, and um, to keep the child, you know, firmly held, and that child knows exactly that they're... Um, cared for and protected the ability and the knowledge that they can get support will have a very different impact to uh, a child that has say uh, sexual abuse but then as a family where that trust is not there if they don't then trust that there's anyone that they can tell and they won't be shamed for that because they're already shamed if they feel that they're going to be shamed for that as well, they've got nowhere to turn. Mm. So they'll internalise that, right. possibly, right. you know, right. and keep it to themselves and, and they'll say that, you know, there's something wrong with me because that happened. You know, it's my fault. Right. They take the blame for it. They don't realise that they've been manipulated, mm. that someone's taken advantage of them. They're innocent. And in that child's way, things are black and white somehow in a child's logic. They take it on and say, oh, yeah, that's, you know, that's because of me. You know, this is possibly one scenario. A traumatic experience doesn't necessarily lead to an internal holding of trauma. Okay. Like Peter Levin really studied animals and how they respond to uh, trauma and he saw that you know animals say might be attacked by other ones um, say like a deer for instance being attacked by I don't know a lion but then those the ones that might escape then they have a way of then just shaking for instance to sort of and then life goes on mm, like they're shaking off this adrenaline and all the sort of the the fear that went with it or something, something like that yeah so that they there's not 
not a way that they usually hold on to it in the same way that we did and that sort of got him sort of curious about, you know, why is that? Because he was studying uh, Vietnam vets and all sorts of things. Very interesting man. Look him up. You'll find a lot about trauma there. Okay. Highly recommended. You, you, what you're saying is not all. we don't hold on to trauma all the time. Just because there's a traumatic experience doesn't mean it's going to cause us any long-lasting trouble. Mm. But if there's no outlet or there's no flow-through that this energy, this traumatic energy can sort of be processed by, then it can be remain in the body. That's it. Yeah. Yep. So when the... Traumatic experience happens. Yeah. There's a way then that we can either receive that somatic experience in the body, or if it's too much for our ability to deal with it, we might then hold it and push it down somehow. Essentially, we're trying to deal with it by pretending it's not there. So then with dealing with trauma, then in some ways the challenge of the person with the trauma and the therapist is enable the person to then receive what's happening within the body again and to come into direct alignment with it and, and somehow welcome it back into awareness okay. to give it the space to be felt, to be experienced. Obviously there's a reaction pattern set up when we have an initial trauma or just yeah. let's not even call it trauma, just an event that happens and it might scare us. Say it's someone walks into the kitchen and drops a, drops a cup on the ground. It's like, oh, you know, and we react in, um, in a certain way and maybe the next time that person comes into the kitchen, we might be see them and reacting like, oh, with a little bit of a defense mechanism, like, hey, let's get ready for that cup to smash, maybe. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I just wanted to bring that back to trauma because I think mm -hmm. it's really relevant to acknowledging how we can stay stuck in these reactive sort of cycles. Yeah. And while we're in those cycles, not have the space to express ourselves more authentically separate of this reactive pattern. Yeah. So say this plate breaker, smasher, is someone who's a bit angry, huh? Mm. So, for instance, growing up, we might have been in a family where there was a, you know, an angry parent and violence was never far from the surface, yeah. So as a child, how we dealt with that might have been to, um, well, generally have something to do with survival, something along those lines. And that might have been one of um, either rebelling against it, you know, fuck you, or uh, just freezing, which would have been just sort of making ourselves small to fit in and just sort of being good or whatever, or, you know, running away somehow, you know. And that becomes our then our pattern for dealing with conflict in this instance. And so there was the 
like we might come to say someone who's really angry then as an adult and find ourselves doing the same thing again or feeling really terrified or fearful or angry or um, just like unable to do anything, you know, and, and just like tiptoeing around, not wanting to bring up negative things for fear of conflict. So then there's the actual situation that happened in childhood. There's the way that we dealt with it and there's the way we wanted to deal with it, mm. you know. And that's the bit where we can start to then move out of that. So how we wanted to deal with it maybe would have been something along the lines of can we just find some other way to, you know, talk about things? You know, as a child, you're not going to be so rational. Probably it'll be much more emotional and it'll be like, stop fighting. You know, stop fighting. Stop, stop hurting each other. It'll be more, much more raw. So somehow we've got to connect to that original oomph, that impulse that got suppressed. So what's that initial impulse, you know? What did you want to say? And somehow what's, in, in some ways, what's the energy then behind that? Okay. And with anger itself, then you want to split anger from aggression. So aggression is what you do with anger, for instance, in this time. So anger can have some very healthy expressions because it can be something that stands up for moral good, you know? It often has something very important to say. You know, oftentimes it gets a bit of a bad rap in our society, but actually anger has lots of really good things about it. And you want to get in touch with that anger because that's the more the fullness of your being mm. and find out what's the good in anger here. What's, the, what's it really want to say? And aggression, though, aggression is that bit where you want to try and overpower someone you know, be stronger than them somehow. Or, you know, like, I'm right, you're wrong. Different things. Right. If you can separate those out, you know, then you can really start getting to that, your anger, which is your power, and that's sort of then moving, starting to move out of that trauma, possibly in a healthy way. Okay, so, okay. so now I'd just like to transition into back into meditation mm. and mindfulness practices and how we could possibly use those to get in touch with going back and revisiting these places, these, these memories, these, these traumas. When you come to meditation, it can be sort of easy to do, say, mindfulness of breathing, but doing it in a way that you're not connected with the body. If you're just following the nose here, you may find that still it's a very heady experience where we're really just in the mind itself. Yeah. So what's important, I think in my experience, is that awareness of the breathing is a f more of a full body experience. Yeah. So as far as trauma goes, if we, if we sort of take it out to be a bit more broader there in that sense of what is our conditioning. Yeah. When we come into the body and start accepting 
the experience of the body as it is, at the same time as that happens, then we start to notice what our habits of mind are, our habits of being, our habits of expression. And we start to sort of pull apart this veneer of, of who we think we are. We can see that these, these thoughts, these um, ideas about life, are really just that, they're just ideas and there's nothing actually permanent about them. So once we start to see these, and say for, if we go back to say a more, uh, we say unpleasant traumatic experience, we can see that around that, there'll be a whole story that's built up around that. And that story oftentimes is, is a way of uh, keeping us away from that pain that's associated with that, that's held in the body somehow. So coming into the body, we get a chance to feel exactly what's there. And if that's pain, that's what we stay with. And by staying with it in, at the sensation level and receiving it as it is, we give it a little space to express itself. And that experience for the past has a chance to come up to be lived in the present moment. And we can also let it go. And this is the letting go of our suffering. Yeah. You're talking before about the natural wisdom of the body. Yeah. And by just allowing whatever you find there in the sensory experience to be there and give it that space, mm. you're giving the body the space to let its natural wisdom to operate. Yeah, more or less. More or less. The body has its own wisdom if we listen to it. It will tell us what foods it likes and what foods it doesn't like, yeah? It tells us how it likes to be treated and um, it's really up to us whether we listen to it. So with this watching, this impersonal watching mm -hmm. of what arises, our reactions of... Yeah. Just watching. Just watching. Yeah. What happens over time, say there's this angry person that keeps coming into the room and every time we just watch our reaction, this might mm. be a bit fearful or a bit like we suppress ourselves or we might not speak up. What happens when we just keep watching that with that impersonal, in that impersonal way? Does that begin to heal or do we move into a different way of reacting over time? Uh, I would say it's a very individual thing, like there's not one set process. But essentially, there's this thing, you might call it an experiential disidentification. That as you understand the process better and better and better, that becomes clearer and clearer, then slowly the identification with that um, fear of anger in this instance starts to weaken and it doesn't have quite the same hold so that then just frees up more options of how to be with that so our normal withholding of expression may not be quite the same or our violent expression our own violence we might be so driven perhaps Generally, it's a much more gradual thing than a, a sudden enlightenment. Mm. 
there might be an awakening experience where I say, huh, but with many things, it's a gradual weakening. It's a common spiritual teaching to say you, you are not your thoughts and you are not your emotions and, and feelings. Mm-hmm. In some sense, I understand that, but it's also hard for the mind to, to understand that. Yeah. But I think it's a key thing to acknowledge or realize going into this because if we if we don't have any knowledge of that and the, the angry person comes into the room um, we're going to instantly personalize that interaction otherwise there's no space there to just watch because we feel like everything that comes up is us is like oh i'm feeling angry like you know there's no mm. space to just watch and i don't really know what my question is but Let's just pause there for a second, because in, in a way it's also not just about just watching. It's much more about the, the free response or, you know, a response that's, in this instance, would be not conditioned. A response that would be true to the moment. Yeah, they talk about this in Zen teachings a lot, you know, that, um, you know, the story about the two monks who come to the stream and, and one, there's someone... Uh, waiting there, a helpless maiden of some sort. And the one doesn't stop, he just, he says, you know, look, can I help you cross? You know, and he picks her up and carries her across the outside, drops her and walks off. And the other monk, meanwhile, is just like privately fuming and finally says, you know, like you, what have you done? You know, you know that monks cannot touch women. You know, that's... It's just not in our um, uh, vinaya. You know, it's one of the rules that's forbidden. And the other monk, to summarise a long story, says to him, well, you know what? I put her down back there at the edge of the river when we crossed, but you're still carrying her. Yeah. So it's that the right thing to do in the moment was to pick the woman up and help her cross the other side, yeah, for whatever reason. But that was the natural impulse and then move on. So if there's someone super angry, who knows what the right impulse is? You'd have to be there. But it's definitely not about just watching. Yeah. Because that might be just freezing again, more of the frozen response. That's a big point, especially for me, because I find it easier to just be very passive. Yeah. And... That, that particular watching, that honouring that moment and taking action, the appropriate action, the unique action for that moment yeah. is not about passive watching and passive like, oh, well, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Yeah. No. But you're a victim again. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's mm. very important for me to hear. Mm. Yeah. And it's important that it would have to be based on that moment mm. because maybe the other thing is to just get the hell out of that room because this guy's totally lost it and no one is going to help him you know or her it's, it's really important to gauge the moment you know yeah. what i'm hearing mm. is there's no black and white answers there's no unfortunately f- no there's no formula <laughs> i mean but this is good because the, the mind often the conceptual mind often thinks in these black and white like that's good that's bad that's lovely that's horrible mm. You know, that didn't work this time, so it should work like this next time. Yeah. And what you're saying is, no, all this, this uniqueness to every moment, to, every, to each 
words are hard here, but there's a uniqueness to every interaction. Like we've been talking for a while today, but in this very moment, this is this hasn't happened before. This is the uniqueness of yeah. this moment. Mm. So it's about a healthy embracing of life in its fullness. You know that where we are in relation to that is much more important than what's happening itself. So, for instance, the violence, we probably won't be able to stop it, no matter how much we try. So it's up to us then to try to deal with it wisely. And what do we do? We do our best, and then sometimes we just have to get out of there. Or maybe, you know, like, we do need to make a stand. It's what's that impulse inside. Mm. Making a stand is pretty important sometimes. We've covered a lot of ground today, but I'd like to step back again and just ask you about on your journey so far of self-development and, and mindfulness and everything you've done, what's been one of the more significant learnings I think it's very hard to say. Um, well, I just say like the first thing that popped into mind as you asked the question would be around that um, moment of understanding the Buddha's teachings. That first time of really like after quite a bit of practice, I've got to say, so some quite intense practice for a number of years, um, and and thinking that I sort of knew what was happening. I was with some friends and we'd actually been practicing with some beautiful Catholic nuns in India. We were, um, they had wanted the friend who was teaching the retreat to teach them meditation. I think it was the joy and sweetness and innocence of these nuns really affected me. It was so contagious. Um, it was like, you, you're teaching us. <laughs> we're not teaching you meditation. You're teaching us about life and joyfulness. And um, it was a silent retreat, but they were hopeless. They just giggled and giggled the whole time. <laughs> and, and we loved it. We delighted in it. And I really started learning something about welcoming life and welcoming experience. And uh, as I did and just stayed with this... this uh, thing of loving experience as it came, loving it, a welcoming, 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 just let it come, receiving, let it come, let it come. Then in that moment, then I, I well, in, in a moment, there was just that moment of seeing, huh, yes, it changes. My, my inner experience is constantly changing and it wasn't an idea, it was the direct experience of like, it, it's, constantly moving and that I would say was the start of of that truly changed in a way uh, my life from then forward because then there was absolutely no doubt about the truth of the Buddha's teachings I'd seen it and I'd gone from someone who thought I might be understanding the teachings to say aha that's it yeah 
yeah, the beauty of that, I think that's been enough to keep inspiring me to come back to practice again and again and again, to the beauty of the Dharma, you know, and what uh, has been going for a very, very long time. Yeah. So I think I've had to do that, but also I've had to do psychotherapy as well. After that experience, then I've also had to do psychotherapy to sort of delve deeper into um, uh, experiences of my own that I've needed to uncover, to understand, to uh, explore. You know, what's my conditioning? Yeah. So that that's actually good to hear because it's not just meditation. It's not like this magic pill. You know, just meditate and everything. You know, <clears throat> over time, everything will be great. There's other avenues of, of healing and understanding the self and the conditioning. There has been for me, and, and that's... And I've done many, many things, but I think Hakomi was the thing, Hakomi psychotherapy was the thing that really helped me to then uh, meet these habits of meeting life in me and, and find a way of communicating about them in a different way and then communicating with others in a different way as well, helping them to touch those things in a way that um, other forms of, say, counselling that I'd trained in um, didn't do. Yeah, so the beauty of Hakomi is that you learn a way of meeting someone's experience and your own that's beyond words. And it gives a vocabulary to that. Because mm. you're, you're a trained Hakomi uh, therapist. So. I, I've finished the training. I'm not certified. Okay. So there's still a certification process that you go through to become certified, which is a refining uh, of your awareness and the way that you relate to people. And your uh, refined awareness of, um, of skills and of how the mind works as well, of how we deal with trauma, how we create strategies to meet life. Yeah. So is there a, a place that you'd recommend if someone wants to read a bit more about the Dharma? And you, you mentioned how profound it was for you when you heard, mm-hmm. heard that, but I'm interested to read more myself. Is there a nice like website or resource to? that's quite concise without sort of yeah because it's also very it's a very broad thing you know that there's many interpretations of it as far as teachings go there's a a website called dharma seed and on there there's a lot of talks from inside meditation teachers and you sort of have to go and find out who works for you really that's a really good entry point that one there's lots there if someone wants to sort of because you also teach and, and lead retreats yourself. Mm-hmm. If someone's interested in finding out more about those, where, where can they go to? I uh, have a website which is the dharmapath.com.au and that's the best place. You can contact me via that. Also do one-to-one sessions, psychotherapy, meditation teaching. So they can get in touch through there? and Yeah. yeah. That's it. Fantastic. Thanks, man. Thanks for talking. Anton, it's been incredible.
So tonight, um, I want to talk about posture and meditation and the posture of meditation and how uh, the posture that you adopt very much affects your experience of meditation. And this is not something that's so pushed in insight meditation, but in Zen in particular, uh, posture and meditation are the same thing a lot of the time. And I think there's a lot to be learned from that. And uh, as far as meditation goes, it's, um, it's really important to learn the instructions well. To analyze what it is that you're trying to do and understand that intimately within your body, within your experience. Understand that there's a, a process, a step-by-step -step process of learning that has been laid out in this tradition for years, 2,500 years. And in Buddhist teachings, there's a thing called skillful means. And there's a way that the teacher will offer the teachings in skillful ways to try and speak to the audience that they have. But also for the person listening, to listen in a way that's skillful. To take the instructions in and analyze them. What do they mean for me? I'm trying to put an experience across, but it's up to you to then uh, take hold of that, to own those instructions. See, what does this mean in my experience? When I talk about craving, what does that mean? Okay, so just a couple of things about tonight, the instructions. I'll be using uh, the term midline or central channel. When I say that, I'll be talking about essentially from the top of the head, through down through the torso, through the neck, to the perineum. Does everyone know what the perineum is? Yeah. And talking about this area just in, in front of the spine. So it's gonna be a very somatic body-based meditation. So I'll be using those terms midline or central line interchangeably, but mainly the same sort of thing. So the other thing about uh, the posture is that I'll be offering little adjustments all the way through. So it's important that any adjustments are made in a very, very subtle way. in a way that you first feel into the body where the adjustment's happening and allow that adjustment to be a micro-movement, a micro-adjustment through the sense of feeling. So let's start. Let's start by 
sitting upright. If you're in a chair, I'd recommend that you don't sit against the back of the chair. See if you can sit more towards the forward, the front of it, I mean, so that your spine can sit up straight and not slouching. And we can begin by allowing awareness to rest into the spine. And just see how the spine might want to unfold, to unwind. So closing the eyes. and just seeing where the spine wants to be upright. Don't be afraid to feel in detail into the spine. As you do that, there'll be places where you feel stuck and tight. And just feel that. You can find a sense of arcaneness about stuckness and tightness for now. And as you stay with that awareness in the spine, see if you can then try to create some ease in the flow of that awareness. Ease in that space from the tailbone through to the top of the head. Just paying very close attention to the spine. As you stay resting there in the spine, this is one of those micro movements. Just let yourself move forward, rock forward a little bit until you feel like you've gone too far forward. And then rocking very gently, just let yourself go backwards till you feel like you've gone too far back and very slowly very slowly playing with this rocking movement back and forth very slowly and just noticing that there's a place as you go forward from being too far back, that you'll feel that you might be in the midline, in the center. And then as you go back, 
feeling again where you might be passing through that midline until it feels too far back. Just doing that a couple of times. And then resting in this, this midline, this place where it feels not too far forward or back and resting there. This is not something that can be seen from outside. It's something that's experienced. It's a felt thing inside the body. And staying with that felt experience. And now just do the same going side to side, left, and then very gently to the right until it feels too far right. These micro movements. And as you go through the center each time, just feeling that place in the midline, you might just pass through it and feel that that feels right. Go to the other side, come back, noticing the midline, midline as you go through it. Just notice how you might start thinking, tuning out from the body, and then rest in the midline again. Coming to stillness, let that go. So let's sit now and pay attention. Pay attention to the spine. And just notice what happens to your posture. when you start thinking. Presence in the spine. Paying attention to this, this straight spine. And here when I use straight, I mean where you're sitting in this experience of alignment in this midline. So noticing when you lose this and when you come back. So just notice 
You can play with these very slight adjustments yourself anytime. And see how it's a, a dynamic posture. It's not locked in. There's nothing rigid about it. And even the breathing affects it. Now, as you stay with that experience of the spine, the midline, also start to notice, pay attention to the in-breath. I notice there's a subtle lifting with the in-breath and pay attention to that. And now on the in-breath, just allow the spine to gently extend towards the top of the head. And at the end of the in-breath, just staying there, this micro-movement. And on the next in-breath, again, just having this very slight, just going with that extension up. I'm feeling the space in the spine. This sense of it elongating very gently. So any sense of the Compression in the spine is being very gently released. That's how the belly can actually relax down as the spine lightly lifts. The top of the head lifts. And notice that there's a, a feeling of dignity and beauty can come into the body as you stay with this. The dignity, uprightness and nobility 
as the head lifts, the back of the head lifts, a sense of peacefulness can come into the body. We're allowing space in our being to be as we are. Notice if there's any tendency for the back of the neck to compress and the chin to go up. Gently allow the chin to drop as the back of the neck has space. Space comes into the back of the neck as the chin drops. There's no pressure, just space. So we're looking to relax and open from the top of the head, back of the neck. In particular, we're opening from the top of the head down the back of the neck to the shoulder level. From the shoulder level, we're opening the spine through to the heart and the throat, which is a problematic area for us with expression and the experience of non-thought, non-thinking. Allowing that back of the heart to open. as we stay with that, we can see where meditation now starts to have a deeper meaning as we connect somatically to our experience. Notice how what we've done so far, it changes the way you feel about yourself. 
allowing space into the spine, sitting in our nobility, chin dropping down, back of the neck, spacious. we stay with this experience, we can see there's a non-conceptual experience of our natural strength and goodness. Notice when the thinking starts and just come back into this direct experience of the spine this midline, this core experience of our body. Now, gently bringing the ears back to rest over the shoulders if they're not already there. As you do that, allowing the shoulders to drop again, the back of the neck to have a space. Once again, tuning into the in-breath, feeling that lengthening, gentle lengthening through the spine, but then sinking into the belly with that exhale, allowing the sense of self to drop, sense of me. Gently letting that be released. And be with the pure experience of this midline, spine. Setting aside all thoughts, feelings, emotions, any sense of humiliation you might feel about who you are, what you do, letting that rest. Just come back to this posture.
keep vigilant. Don't let yourself spin out with thinking too much. Once you notice that, start again. In fact, you could even start again every 20 or 30 seconds coming back into the body. Let yourself fully identify with the posture. For those of you who have meditated a little bit, allow yourself to cultivate this empty field of awareness. The final piece, feeling the lower belly and breathing through the lower belly. So now the, the belly becomes a very light reference point. Allowing yourself to receive the sensations there in the belly. The spine lifts these micro movements from the belly. And each breath invigorates and enlivens the posture. 
of the breath is felt in the spine and the body comes into its own natural dignified life. 